This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to in 39 countries around the world. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com. As Victoria said a few seconds ago, I am your host, Scott Lunsford, researcher, retired law enforcement, school resource officer, SRO, wearer of many hats, endurer of many things, or at least attempting to do many things. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. But if we don't try, we'll never know. And this is The Felon File where we look at crime punishment issues that have happened in in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond there. Today we're going to take a look at Mount Airy, North Carolina. Some of you may be familiar with Mount Airy. Uh, Mount Airy is a city in Surrey County, North Carolina. has a population roughly about 10,000 plus. Initially settled in 1750s as a stagecoach stop, on the road between Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Galax, Virginia. It was named for a prominent nearby farm and was incorporated in 1885. The city has several locations listed on the National Historic Registry of Places of Importance and History. Mount Airy is right next to the Ararat River. Right next to the Ararat River and it's about three miles south of the Virginia state line. Mount Airy is the home of actor, singer, and comedian Andy Griffin. When his TV program, The Andy Griffin Show, debuted in 1960, it quickly became thought of as the idyllic small southern town and what it should look like. And if you're a show fan, you know that the TV town of Mayberry was patterned after Griffin's hometown of Mount Airy. Some residents still call their home Mayberry. In fact, if you visit Mount Airy today, which I would recommend, it's a beautiful place, you will find vintage Ford Galaxy police cars going up and down the street on tours. Floyd's Barbershop and a replica of the TV courthouse in the jail are also there where you can visit. According to Crime Stats, your chance of becoming a victim of a violent crime in Mount Airy are less than 1 in 251. It's a fairly safe place to live and visit. If you do visit, be sure to check out the Mount Airy Ghost Tour. And you got to take a ride in one of the police car tours that leaves from Wally's gas station. Mount Airy, the mythical town. You wouldn't expect Mount Airy or the mythical town of Mayberry that they would be a location you would expect to find a bombing attack. And a Shade of Blue story, but it is. And that is what our Shade of Blue story is about today. Mount Airy has had not one, but two separate criminal bombing incidents. I don't know if it will make you feel better about them, but both of these incidents happened years apart at different 
individual suspects. And both the suspects are gone. But the one thing that connects both of those incidents from different times was a broken heart. You might call it cases of lovelorn bombers. Now let's go back to Mount Airy in 1936. Dr. Harvey Richard Haig had been a Mount Airy dentist for close to 20 years. He was also involved in the development of a new denture making and manufacturing medium. And he did this in a laboratory on the other side of the state line in Virginia. He had a young lady that worked for him as a receptionist in his dentist's office. Elise Dickerson Salmon. She worked there at his office in Mount Airy. And she'd been doing so since 1933, about three years. Unfortunately, being an attractive young lady, her boss started showing unwanted attention of the wrong kind. Even though the doctor was quite a bit older and married, she ended up having to deal with some uncomfortable comments and innuendos. Sometimes happen, but it shouldn't. But it did turn out that Miss Salmons ended up meeting a man about her age and she got engaged. The young lady ended up announcing her engagement in the papers to a wealthy uh, farmer from Virginia, Chesapeake Bay, and Mr. Curry Thomas. And of course, it was written up in both their hometown papers. Their engagement made the couple very happy but unfortunately did the opposite for old dentist Dr. Haig. If he wasn't before, the dentist was now most definitely obsessed with his young receptionist now. The obsession going in a dangerous direction as well. The dentist began mailing letters and sending special delivery telegrams to his receptionist, begging her not to leave, not to get married. And of course, as usually happens, the begging turned as it will in domestic violence type situations involving passion. He began demanding that she stay and not be involved with a well-off farmer from Virginia. And of course, emotions started running high on his side. The doctor finally told her that no one could have her if he couldn't have her. Well, Elise had been married before and had divorced a Mr. John Salmons, who lived in Virginia. And her new future husband, Mr. Curry, had also been married. His first wife was killed in a train wreck. And this was a lot of baggage that both of them had to, had worked very hard to get over and deal with. They, of course, felt very fortunate to have found each other and felt it was a great time to start a new life together. Her boss's odd and obsessive messages and behavior, they just basically ignored them. Elise was 35 and Curry was 47. And they got married on June 10th at her mother's home in Virginia. It was after this that the couple moved to the Virginia coast to settle at Cape Charles in a late 18th century home that Curry owned. Now on July 22nd, 1936, just a couple of weeks after their wedding, they had gone off and played a couple of rounds of golf. And they had received a message that there was a package for them at the post office to be picked up. So they went by the local post office on the way home after their little golf outing. 
and picked the same up. The package showed a Richmond, Virginia postmark, and Curry thought it was possibly a gift from some of his family. You know, a wedding present, running a little late. Now, once in the driveway at home, the new husband, Curry, decided not to wait to open the package, but went ahead and opened it up in the car instead before going inside. Elise stepped out of the car while her husband opened the box. It was then she heard a sharp click, kind of like a mousetrap, how she later described it, immediately followed by a loud explosion. The noise was heard throughout the area. It was loud enough to attract the attention of nearby farm workers who found Elise unconscious and thrown far away from the car. She was severely injured, but she did survive. The blast had blown her new husband, Curry, through the roof of the car and away from it, killing him instantly. Parts of the car were scattered a reasonable distance around the wreckage, and of course there was damage to the home as well from frying shrapnel and debris. Local law enforcement started their investigation with the assistance of the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. And it didn't take long to figure out the device had been in the package the couple had just picked up from the post office. This placed the case and the investigation into the hands of the U.S. Postal Inspection. Two federal postal inspectors were sent from Baltimore, Maryland to investigate. These were inspectors B.B. Webb and J.B. Sentiment. The evidence collected in the debris field ended up revealing a battery label, part of a mailing label, and the mousetrap-like mechanism that snapped to the electric connection that detonated the device. As in any investigation, you got to start by eliminating the obvious suspects. First, the postal inspectors looked at Elise's ex-husband. He lived in Virginia where the incident occurred but he suffered from a brain injury from an accident that required him to be occasionally hospitalized for periods of time on and off. He had an alibi for the incident, and he also had some brain injuries that, that made it very difficult for him to have created or constructed such a device. And the two had divorced amicably. It wasn't a problem or a big nasty divorce. Now, finding someone else with a motive in Cape Charles, Virginia for the bombing and murder, well, that didn't turn out too good, and they couldn't turn up a suspect. So the inspectors turned their attention to Mayberry, or Mount Airy. The focus soon fell on our dentist, Dr. Hagen, who Elise had been working for for three or four years. The recovered battery label was traced from a Canadian manufacturer to a Cleveland, Ohio distributor, and then on to a Mount Airy hardware store. And it just so happened, the hardware store was on the ground floor, right below the dentist's office. Two sticks of dynamite were also traced back to Mount Airy, and then to the doctor. A short length of pipe and pipe caps that were used in the device were also tracked to Mount Airy. 
Enough of the mailing labels survive to identify the type of typewriter used. When you have a mechanical typewriter, studying the typeface generated by the machine shows that they're as individual as a fingerprint is on a human. The inspectors positively link the mailing label, what was left of it, to a specific typewriter owned and used by the dentist in the dentist's office. Well, when the postal inspectors presented some of their evidence to workers at the postal facility that would have handled the package, one of the clerks described the man who had mailed it, giving a very good description of the good dentist. The federal investigation ended up showing that Dr. Haig and a friend of his, an Ed Banner, had conveniently been in Richmond the day before the package was mailed. Federal prosecution wanted to keep the case in Virginia where the bombing had occurred and avoid extradition proceedings, worked with the postal inspections to set a trap for the two men. A woman working for them lured Haig and Banner across the Virginia and North Carolina state line into Virginia. Once across the state line, the two were arrested. This was on the Monday evening on October 5th of 1936. Taken to a location at the coast near where the bombing occurred, the two men were secured in a jail facility to wait for further investigation, interviews, and trial. Now, just hours after being locked down, with Hagee in his cell and Banner in his, a jailer making his rounds spotted blood trickling under Hagee's cell door. Investigating, they found Hagee with some severe injuries to his wrist. He claimed that the bloody injury to the wrist was an accident and it was a, from a cut from his wristwatch. An interesting point that was noticed relatively quickly was uh, the dentist didn't wear a watch. He carried a pocket watch. The injury to his wrist was severe enough to require stitches. Once completed, a closer watch was kept on the North Carolina dentist while he was locked up. When Dr. Hagee's wife and his lawyer drove up from Mount Airy to visit him, he swore to them that he had done nothing and had nothing whatsoever to do with the bombing. It was all a big mistake and a misunderstanding. He convinced his wife that while he had nothing to do with the bombing, he had no way of keeping track of what was happening while he was in jail. And for safety reasons, they had taken his glasses and he could not read the newspapers. Now, on their way out of the jail to return to Mount Airy, his wife inquired of the jailers and requested that they return his glasses so he could read the newspapers. With some insisting from his attorneys, the reading glasses were returned to Haig. Having the glasses returned, once he was alone, he broke the lenses and used the sharp edge of one of the lenses to cut an artery in his other wrist and his jugular vein. To avoid the blood trail that had caught him the first time, he used something to catch the spilling blood, which there was quite a bit of, apparently. One newspaper article said it was possibly a suitcase that they had allowed him to keep in his cell. He was found dead the following day, on September 11th, on a Sunday, lying on his cot. 
The doctor was buried three days later on October 14th at the Mount Airy Grace Moravian Cemetery on North Main Street. Land that he had personally donated for a cemetery to the church. This left Hagee's friend, Mr. Banner, to face the consequences. He was a longtime friend of the doctor, but he was released from jail and not prosecuted once the Commonwealth's attorney was positive that Banner didn't know why he was on the trip to Richmond with the, his friend, the dentist. It was just a cross-country ride with a friend that he went on. And he was legitimately surprised by all that occurred. But was justice served? I guess it depends on your opinion on that. He took his own life. Therefore, did he avoid meeting with Lady Justice? And instead, I guess that depends on your personal opinion and your outlook on just what justice is. Now, I promised you two Shade of Blue stories. Our second Shade of Blue story from Mayberry, a.k.a. Mount Airy, happened New Year's Eve 1951. 24-year-old William H. Cochran, a popular teacher at White Plains School there in Mount Airy, got into his truck at the Franklin Apartments there in town heading to work for the start of classes after Christmas break. His wife, Emma Jean, Moses Cock, had already left for work. The two had been married for only about four months, newlyweds again. Starting his truck, he was greeted with a massive explosion. Years later, a newspaper reporter at the Mount Airy News would write that he remembered feeling the blast blocks away at the newspaper office. The explosion shook the entire area and busted out windows of the four-story apartment building. Several pieces of the truck were hauled over the building. The explosion propelled the 24-year-old school teacher through the truck's roof to land a dozen feet away. He was still alive and still able to talk a little bit when help did arrive. He was taken to the hospital, but in order to save his life, doctors ended up eventually amputating both of his legs. After surgery, William was guarded by a deputy stationed outside his room in case the unknown attacker made another attempt. William passed away 13 hours after the explosion incident itself. The State Bureau of Investigation sent an agent, John Edwards of Elkin, North Carolina, to investigate the attack and murder. The funeral was held four hours away in Williams' home of Franklin, North Carolina, where his father was the chief of police. Now, the Mount Airy chief police personally carried the recovered evidence and bomb parts to Washington's Federal Bureau of Investigation lab for examination. Mount Airy City offered a $2,500 reward, and North Carolina Governor Scott added another $400 to the reward. Local police and agents with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation worked on interviewing everyone and anyone who was connected to William's life. Did he have enemies? Had he made anyone really mad lately? Had he been in any fights? How did he get along with his students? Even the most minor thing or contact with anybody 
was investigated and examined for a possible motive. While he was still alive, the high school ag teacher told the responding police paramedics that he, he did not know who would have done this and that he wasn't aware of having any enemies. As a matter of fact, teachers at the high school and residents of the community told investigators and the press that Cochran was a popular teacher and thought of very highly in the community. A significant concern was, did the attack have something to do with his father's job as a police chief in Macon County? They kept digging into the background of William and his wife. Individuals the two had dated before getting married, looking at her time while attending the Appalachian State Teachers College. Previous jobs teaching and other things were examined for contact with a possible suspect. The range of the investigation continued to grow with each day of the inquiry. The case continued for more than two years without a positive lead. A year after the murder, the young widow ended up moving across the state to Edenton, North Carolina to restart her life. Three years after the explosive attack on her husband, Imogene met someone in April of 1954, now that she was living on the east coast of North Carolina. That relationship grew and the two started making wedding plans. The new man in her life was a farmer, a very well-off farmer, George Byron, who served on the city council as one of Edenton's most eligible bachelors. As the wedding day grew closer, Imogene gave notice at work, and after this she walked to her car on April 7th early in the morning and parked outside the house where she had rented a room. She observed something underneath the driver's seat that made her stop and pause when she opened the car door. It was a small open top box about 6 by 10 inches. The box was filled with tiny stone pebbles, copper wire, and a flashlight. Now, after what had happened before, of course, this made her quite concerned. And afraid to move, she called out for help, finally getting the attention of her landlord who came out to the car when she called, and he ended up carrying the box to a vacant area of the property while Imogene called the police. Now in the box, the Edison police chief saw picture frame wire attached to a flashlight battery and blasting powder. As he carried the box into the police station, the crude bomb ended up exploding. Didn't kill him, but it did burn his arms and legs somewhat. Now on a side note, if you think it's a bomb, treat it like it is. Leave it alone and wait for the experts, the bomb techs, to handle the thing. Studying the bomb remnants, State Bureau of Investigation agents thought it was designed merely to scare Imogene more than it was to harm her. The agents that had worked on William Cochran's case since his gruesome New Year's Eve death three years earlier, and in the three years of investigation they had developed one maybe possible suspect, and that's about it. But they never could pull up anything enough to get a warrant, either a search warrant or an arrest warrant, to go any further. Well, being this their only lead over time, they decided to start with this and to question this possible suspect once more. This man's name was George Smith. 
George had long been fixated on Imogene. The two grew up together in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Their house is only a tenth of a mile from each other. They had grown up together as childhood friends. And in Pittsburgh, Ketchum County, the sheriff there knew George and knew that he remained a suspect. And he had kept his eyes on him. The sheriff was later quoted and told the SBI, I drove by Smith's house at least 10,000 times in the past two years, but there never was anything noteworthy, anything that drew my attention or made me want to investigate or possibly investigate further. Now, the weekend before the bombing, Imogene had traveled to Pittsburgh to visit with her parents. Now, the SBI theorized that 38-year-old Smith, George may have seen her during this visit, or possibly he had heard somebody talk about her. So the SBI agents went and questioned George at the service station where he worked. It was apparent the questions ended up striking some sort of a nerve. He acted very nervous and out of sorts. Smith even allowed a forensic team to search and inspect his car. The forensic techs used an evidence collection vacuum and went over the interior of the car, looking for anything that might connect George to the crimes. Now, it was decided that surveillance needed to be kept on George until they could get the vehicle evidence examined and a report back on it. From the time of the search, two SBI agents did not let George out of their sight, except one time. Now, agents waited close by following him home as he left work. This is the day after they interviewed him. They watched as George drove straight to his parents' home, where he still lived, and they observed George Smith park, park there at his parents' house. Then strangely, instead of going in the house, Smith started walking across a nearby field towards the stand of trees. Well, the agents tried their best to continue to observe Smith, but he got out of their sight, uh, tried to track him through the wooded areas, but they ended up losing him. They lost him in the woods near a quarry. Now, when heavy rain moved in, the agents admitted they had lost their target and they gave up the search. And when it started raining really, really heavy, they ended up going ahead and leaving the area. The next day, George's family started getting a little concerned. They had yet to learn where George was. He had not come home, and his vehicle was there at the house, but he had left no word with anyone about where he would be or how long he would be. The SBI agents were notified by the sheriff of the situation, and they joined in with local law enforcement in a search of the area. SBI agents had had last seen George. George's body was found slumped against a tree. He had shot himself in the chest with his 22 long rifle. Probably fairly soon after the SBI guys lost sight of him, the day before. The items collected in search of Smith's vehicle, including the material vacuum from his car, the lab found granular material like that that was in the bomb box. In his pocket after he was found was some copper wire that they were able to match up with the device itself. 
These were the items that connected him to the bomb. Now, the bachelor's suicide was also a convincing piece of evidence. Over the years, George had often asked Imogene out. The problem was that she considered George a childhood friend, not a romantic interest, telling him they'd always be friends. Now, apparently George was looking for another answer. And when he didn't get it, he took his own life. Yes, it's a sad situation, but emotions are very strong and they can guide you either in the correct direction or an incorrect direction. Now, those are our two Shade of Blue stories for this week. Even though Mayberry was a made-up place on TV, the town it was based on is very real. And like all communities, sometimes bad things happen. Emotions and feelings can make people do a lot of different things. Some good and some bad. So keep this in mind. If it's ever possible that you can do something good for somebody in your community, take that extra step and do it. The world needs more of these good actions and less of the bad. And in the meantime, if you'd like to check out our website, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. You can find copies of my books there. You can also find links to some of our stuff. Felon File Coffee Mugs. We have two new designs out if you're interested. Be sure to check them out. That's a couple of t-shirts. Let people know you're listening to the Felon File. Nothing says, yeah, I know what's going on, more than drinking your morning coffee while wearing a Felon File t-shirt and drinking the coffee out of a Felon File mug. Yeah, just keep that in mind. In the meantime, y'all be good, be safe, be secure. We'll talk to you in two weeks with another Shade of Blue story here on the Fallon File. Victoria, go ahead and close us out. And we'll talk to you guys later. Bye, y'all. This has been the Fallon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee. Or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do Felon File. Click on the coffee image on the webpage to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.